I'm Mel. And I'm Tosh. And welcome to another episode of Mahogany Mammology, an online dialogue pertaining to the concerns and carefree parenting of Black motherhood. If you would like to sponsor an episode, please email us at mahoganymammology at gmail.com. And now, on to the show. Yay. So, Mel, we have a very good topic, I think, uh, today. And we're going to be talking about living with someone who who has a mental illness or... We'll get into the terminology as well, and I, I definitely want y'all to correct me. Um, I the term is neurodiverse, is what I've I've you know. Researched. It sounds kind of fancy. Well, it, it's all encompassing, but okay. You know, for our topic, you know, mental differences within the African American community has been a taboo topic for many years with perceptions of stigma being the dominant reasoning behind its silence. Thankfully, I think that barrier is breaking down and we are seeing a normalized shift in the individual awareness, acceptance, and need for treatment within our community. But how is our attitude towards intimate partners suffer or does it suffer Hmm. Uh, is there a suffering silence from the caring partner or are we seeing the same shift of openness as well Hmm. so we'll discuss having a partner and or being the partner who is neurodiverse amongst other things with our guest mammologists welcome Hello, hello. Hey. Well, we definitely love, We actually, which is pretty cool, is we have two guest mammologists today. We've never, ever had that before. Um, first, we'd like you to meet Letitia Thomas, LCSW-S. Um, she'll tell us what all those lovely initials stand for. She graduated in, from, uh, in 2005 with her Bachelor's of Social Work, uh, Texas Women's University. She then received a Master's in Social Work from the University of Texas at Arlington. She has worked at the Department of Veteran Affairs as a clinical social worker for 13 years. In April of 2019, she opened a private practice called Tomorrow and Beyond PLLC in DeSoto, Texas. The mission of the practice is to normalize mental wellness for black and brown families. Her specialty is in assisting individuals process traumatic experiences that hindered them from being their best selves. She's currently a professor at Texas Christian University, where she sees herself as a catalyst to mold future social workers. Letitia Thomas does all these things in hopes to live out the legacy of her parents and to ensure her four children have the lives that they deserve. Welcome, Letitia. Welcome. Hello, thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Reading that bio, I'm saying, who is she talking about? <laughs> you. I heard, I heard that was you. <laughs> and, and we also want to uh, welcome and meet uh, Inger Shea Collies. She is an ADHD coach and psychotherapist specialized in making a difference for Black women executives and entrepreneurs, supporting women through clarity, empowerment, and resilience. 
She has successfully run her practice, alchemy coaching and counseling as a therapist and licensed clinical social worker for 15 years. In spite of being undiagnosed until her 50s. Okay, this is going to be real good, y'all. She, she offers the benefits of professional expertise with a lifetime of experience. Welcome, Inger, to our show. We appreciate Welcome, you. Welcome, Inger. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes. So as I kind of alluded to in my topic and we were briefly discussing as an aside, I wanted clarification on the terminology. And so we wanted to get into the conversation of mental differences slash disorders versus, oh, um, neurodiversity. Um, is does either one of you guys want to have your own definition or talk about that? Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure we all we all do. Which uh -huh. is, we all have different definitions. But um, it's interesting, like, so neurodiversity, which is a more of a newer way that people put it, but it's more all-encompassing where, um, you know, ADHD and uh, autism, uh, dyslexia, I can't remember all the different umbrellas, but when you just have like a uh, difference, so it's like nor you're neurodiverse, and then people are neurotypical, um, and that's where the difference would be. So neurodiverse just you know allows for a lot of different divergent thinking. Divergent thinkers are considered neurodiverse, and that would be the difference. Okay. 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 Good deal. And so. I think under that uh, umbrella of mental health conditions, um, there isn't, especially for the African-American community, um, as far as neurodiversity, that's something I'd rather say you quote unquote diagnosed with, um, or you're diagnosed with all of them. But I feel like when we talk things like depression or maybe attention deficit disorder, ADD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, uh, um, it isn't one event. And so I think doing my research, um, it suggests that there are multiple linking causes towards a mental um, illness. I hate, I don't know, if, I don't know what the proper term would be, mental, whatever. Um, I know they say genetics, environment, lifestyle. So Letitia, do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, well, first let me let me back up a little bit. Okay. So the big purple book, right? The DSM-5 is the document that allows us to diagnose, if you will. And so we utilize that and it's not the end all be all. However, this is what insurance is required. So whenever somebody does come see me, their symptoms, signs, and what causes them to come into my office, I do a lot of psychoed on, hey, this is what you're meeting based on this purple book. This is what we're telling your insurance as to why you're coming to see me. However, I tell them this is what we're diagnosed with, but this is not who we are. I don't mm -hmm. over pathologize. It's very important that people do not say, oh, I'm bipolar, right? No, no, no. I, I fall under this category based on the symptoms and where I've led. However, I'm not bipolar. I am, that's not who I am. That's not my identity. And so the title goes there. Yes, I am Letitia Thomas with anxiety, 
versus oh she that's my that's my anxious patient that's my patient that has depression that's my bipolar one right so i really want to separate a diagnosis it's the same thing when someone says okay i have a common cold when you go to your doctor they say okay you have a cold it's similar to them telling your insurance is hey this is what i'm seeing them for this is what i'm treating them for here is the medication that's all but they don't walk around and introduce themselves anymore and wear this label of i'm now the cold walking around right they're still themselves and so i do a good job of helping people identify what are the things that the purple books say that they may need but sometimes those are things that make them who they are it's a part of their personality it's things that we can work with i'm a social worker so i come from a strengths-based perspective that means for me if my client is anxious but they write a lot of lists and that's how they show up and they're anxious about it we're going to identify what are rational ways to utilize this as a good thing for us and what are irrational ways and where it's causing them some type of symptom that they're not okay with um so the purple book if you will or this diagnosis that does create the stigma my goal again is to take it from mental illness to talking about it as, as far as mental wellness it's a part of my life and this is who i am and giving them the tools to use what already works for them and add a few more things to their box so now all of those symptoms that they have that are on a range now we can have it more on the reduced um, ability for them to live the lives they want to live okay so it's almost like you have to be careful in the language that you either describe yourself or if you are a person um in a position to rehabilitate or treat or uh, no, I don't even want to say rehabilitate. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> I don't want to say that either. Maybe uh, to live, live with. With, right? yeah, yeah, I yeah. guess, yeah. Yeah, when you're doing that, you know, just talking to that person. And even if you, if I guess if you had a friend or a partner, as we are saying in our topic, that language and how you even talk to them or describe them is, is important, yeah. right? Absolutely. I have so many people that come to me and say, Tish, I just want you to help me know the difference. Is this my bipolar speaking or is it personality? And they want to know how did I become this person? And so I help them identify. It's okay that if your personality is a person that write lists and you function that way and that goes well, even if it matches in the big purple book, if you will, right? It matches there, but that works well for them. I'm not going to state, well, let's get rid of that for you because it doesn't work well. It may still work well. So it's so you're right. It's kind of that language because words are powerful. It's what I speak over myself. If I say, well, I'm anxious, I'm going to be anxious forever. Well, how does that show up for you? If you believe that you have placed yourself categorized that way, is it limiting you from doing something that, that you've been put on this earth to do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That limiting self-talk is, it's really important to look at that yeah. limiting self-talk because that's what it is. You're talking to yourself all day, every day. And when you decide that you are a diagnosis, then it definitely limits your life. I mean, as somebody who is neurodivergent and I didn't know until I was, you know, really, really, really deep into my life. It was just, it's living the life that you have and being the person that you are. And so it's not putting yourself in this box of, I don't know, uh, you know, like you said, like you have to be rehabilitated or you have, you know, like there's, you know, there's actually something wrong with you. So most of this, this is your life. This is who you are. Um, I love what you're saying, like, you know, the strengths-based perspective, you know, because I am a psychotherapist and a coach and uh, I only use a strengths-based perspective uh, either way, where the things that are working for you, let's really lean into them. 
because they are working for you. The things that you might need to bolster up, because you know there's some things that might not be working for you, let's look at them and figure out ways that we can just bolster that up so that you can still be who you are. We're not trying to be any anyone else than that we already are, because there's nothing wrong. Um, but like anybody, uh, people need to manage their lives. Everyone does. So yeah. doing that, uh, you know, makes you feel powerful and strong. And any of those things that people might consider the deficit part, mm-hmm. you can figure out a way to live well, live well with ADHD. It, it really kind of, it, it's kind of weird that it's in the, the DSM because it is that book. And, you know, ADHD is a real diagnosable condition that's been around. Oh, my goodness. I think they said the first real uh, person that they kind of figure out ADHD was maybe like even back in the 1700s. So it's something that's been around for a long time, but um, there's so much misconception around it. Uh, And part of it is because it's in that that big purple book. Uh, And uh, it's funny, even though it's in the big purple book for so long, there are many people that think that it's not real because you can't see it on me. Right. You know, (laughs) so it's not it's, it's invisible and it's it's inconsistent. So it's really confusing to people and there's not enough knowledge about it. So I think that that's why, you know, you feel like you're stumbling over your language or, you know, feeling a little uh, uncomfortable. But if we don't talk about it, how will people know? So I'm just glad we're talking about it. Yeah, for sure. And so speaking of which, how did you come to find out, Inger, that that you or how did you come about knowing that you were neurodiverse or divergent? Mm -hmm. I... um, it's interesting. I didn't know I had ADHD. And when I was younger, they didn't have that as far as I know. It's like, we just, you know, so it's like, figure it out, figure it out. So when, you know, your parents didn't help you a lot with homework and things like that, if you're running late, you like, you better figure out how to get there. You gotta figure out how to get a seat <laughs> and all those types of things. So I just had times like, you gotta figure it the fuck out. And that's what I did for many years. Um, and I was actually pretty good at figuring it out. Uh, I'm lucky that I had parents that were actually very supportive um, because it took me like eight years to get out of undergrad and they just kept sending me back and I didn't know what was going on. I was just like so super distracted for five years that it wasn't until I just, you know, I saw somebody else graduate. They came in after me and they graduated before me and he was like, he was not smart. And I was like, you're really smart. So I figured out that there were some things I needed to do to be able to graduate. And for the rest of my life, things were a little confusing because things could really work out well, and then they wouldn't. And I couldn't figure out why I would be late, 15 minutes late to everything, and my desk was really disorganized, and people thought different of me because of that. But um, I was, like, always friendly and outgoing and doing a lot of things. So it, I didn't know what was going on. I just be like, okay, that didn't work. Let's keep going. But I knew I felt like uh, kind of like a duck on a water, like, it might look good, but underneath I was paddling like hell, paddling like hell. And that gets really tiring. But it, so it wasn't until uh, my son got diagnosed, because uh, it's interesting, when I went to graduate school, I decided to do that. I graduated in, uh, I graduated on time, and I got pregnant while I was in school, and I had a newborn. And it was no problem to graduate on time, which was very confusing to me and other people. It's like, you know, how were you able to do that, manage all those balls? but you couldn't manage just going through undergrad when you were younger. Um, you know, little did I know that when your focus is different with ADHD, because we can focus, we just have to manage what we're focusing on. So when I had the big why of wanting to finish school, there was no, I was determined to do it. And I was able to 
have a kid work and go to school and finish on time. So that's why I mean, there's like so much misconception. And I didn't get diagnosed till he was diagnosed. When he got diagnosed, they sent home those rating scales, like the Connors and everything. You start checking them off. You're like, oh, that's me. That's me. It's like, oh, God, all those things are me. Like, <laughs> I must have that, too. But I had to spend a lot of time managing him and managing him in school. Um, we, we live in a predominantly white neighborhood, and your little neurodiverse black boy is just seen as someone who is disruptive. They don't look at the diagnosis. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't get actually diagnosed until a little later because I started losing words. Uh, and I'm a psychotherapist. <laughs> and so, you know, we talk all day, like you're saying, I start losing words. I thought something was wrong. I had early onset Alzheimer's. Um, but it turns out that your hormones have a lot to do with your ADHD and how it progresses through the years. That's another thing. Your ADHD is always moving as your hormones move and as your demands on you move. So that's why it's consistently inconsistent. Um, but that's when I, I decided to look and actually get a diagnosis and actually get treatment for it. So that is a really short version of my really long life, <laughs> you know, with ADHD. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, that is fascinating. Yes. And so I get, we're going to jump around a little bit. So yeah. right now we're, we're talking specifically, um, ADHD and, I know you went to school as a psychotherapist, but going back to what we were talking about as language, if someone is first diagnosed, is that is that mindset like I am a ADHD person, like their mindset or their thought process and like treatment would focus on like separating that? Because I feel like society you know, we're not speaking like in first person language. And so it was society sees you as this person. So I'm assuming like, okay, you're going to absorb that. Like you're going to absorb that terminology. So is, I guess with treatment or is your coaching that of trying to separate the, the diagnosis from the outcomes, I guess, or treatment. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe because it's like, like you can't separate yourself, right? Um, you know, I, 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 I was born with ADHD. You know, it's hot. You know, it's something that you, you know, you're born with. Most of it. you're born with that. So it's who I am. Like I'm black and I'm a woman and I have ADHD. Mm-hmm. So they're all together. So it's my wet my eyes with you know my eyes open. I have ADHD. You know, I'm black and I'm a woman. So there's and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are things in my life that I have to manage and manage differently than, you know, other people do. So uh, I guess it's different. I mean, it, that's just the way that I am with it and the way I feel about it. Even my clients, the way that we approach it, it's just who you are. And I even think with people of other diagnoses, so it doesn't mean that you are depression. Like I would tell people, like, you mm-hmm. are you like are cancer. Like you're cancer, you are cancer. But, you know, if you have depression, you need, you know, you're going to manage that. Or like we're saying, manage the anxiety. So I'm going to manage that part of me that has, you know, the ADHD, you know, informs my life. So it's yeah, and just managing guess, your life in general. Yeah, that's what I was, I, I don't know if I can clear this up even more. As you were saying, you you are depression. I guess a person initially diagnosed, they get that diagnosis, quote unquote, you are this. Uh, and society will view you as this, you know, is it, 
is it a a phase of which not a phase is it something in which like you're trying to separate like you are not this you are you just so happen to have this you know that kind of Mm -hmm. mindset okay okay and then from there, I'm going to go a little deeper because it's part of that, the identification of, hey, as we're talking, I based on what you're telling me, you meet the criteria for this. And you've had this before you met me. OK. Let's break down which of these things are things that you want to continue because this works well for you. And what are areas where we are finding a gap or an imp- ability to improve? And we individualize what the Big Purple Book and all these fancy treatment therapy modalities, and I work to break it down. So I've had a client that literally, they may meet, oh, I wanted to say this earlier, I need to just put it here. So the Big Purple Book has maybe 15 symptoms for a certain diagnosis, all right? However, in our society and on TV, they overemphasize one trait and they say, oh goodness, you're diagnosed with that. So often I will have a client that tells me, Letitia, I have depression. And I say, really? So we, I just pull out the book when I'm really trying, <laughs> when I want to help them de-identify with the diagnosis. And I show them, look, the book says you need to meet 15, it's 15 um, symptoms. However, eight of these symptoms make you have this diagnosis. The light bulb moment goes off for them. Oh, so I don't have it. All of my family been saying I have it, right? Because now they have worked mm. themselves up. But even if a person does meet eight of the 10 and they are diagnosed with that, I still help them say, you're not depression. You're living with depression. Now, where do we go from here? And we start creating an individualized plan to help them um, come up with a plan to work on, you know, feeling better. And, and what does that look like for them? Mm-hmm. What What are some of the symptoms or some of the things that people with who live with ADHD do and maybe don't realize it? That, that does that make does that kind of it does. So it's different kinds. So there's hyper. Okay. We have to separate because see, they don't say all of this. There's the hyperactive yeah. kind where it is more maybe they rev up, right? And so they can't really concentrate on things at one time, and things may take their attention and they go elsewhere with their thinking. However, there's another kind that they're more low starters. They can't. Um, uh, I say low start. They, they can't self-start. I guess is the word I want to use. And so that's a different trait of it. But in our Young boys, like um, Miss Inger here was saying, it's behavior. Oh, there's ADHD. Oh, they can't. And it's like, hold on. Some of this is appropriate age development things. We can't okay. expect a kindergartner to sit down for five hours. Shame on him. Mm-hmm. No, that's not necessarily the case. And so, and and I'm sensitive to point out all the symptoms because people will say, oh, I got that. Yes, I do. I know I do. Okay. Um, and it's like, well, hold on. Not necessarily. So it could be paying attention in class, right? Or it could be hard to sit still. Or it just could be disorganization. I'm losing paper sometimes. I forget things. Or it may even be I get angry. So so it's different um, types and the symptomology shows up different in different individuals. I feel like then at this point, everybody has ADHD, don't they, in life? I mean... Shut me up. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, wait, I got to correct you. Because okay, please say do. That, like, we call that, we call that, like, ableist behavior because then you're oh. discounting my experience, right? Because I'm not trying to. I'm I haven't all to. day, I haven't, 
I like, I know. That's why we're talking about it. Listen, yes. I, listen first off, I'm, I'm not that one. I don't have the rejection, rejection sensitivity part. So, you know, but if we don't talk about it, people don't know. So that's why I mean, I'm yeah. so glad we're talking about it because people use that language. Everybody has it because I, you know, I forgot my keys or I have papers. I'm disorganized because I can be late. I, I live with this all day, every day. So I have to work really hard. I don't work really hard to be on time for you guys today. Like it's it can, the focus I have to do to be able to do that because it's one of the parts of the ADHD that I know I need to manage. And we we're talking about the things you just strengths you lean into and the things you manage. I need to manage my time management, and I know this, so I've learned different ways to be able to do that. But it's not like if you're just late for your girlfriend's brunch that one day, or you know, I know I have to organize some like some of the papers I have in front of me to be prepared for just to speak like organize my mind. I have to do that when I have to do this, but it's fine, but that's just what I have to do to manage it. It's not necessarily what people have, you know, you might have to do because you're neurotypical to be able to get ready to be able like to have a talk or something. So when you say that, it, it's kind of like if somebody who were white were like, you know, look, when they go, look at the tan I got, <laughs> you see the tan oh. and they put their arm up against you and you're like, stop that. Yeah. <laughs> It feels like that when you do that. So that's, okay. you know, just so you know. And I think it's, uh, again, it's important to get it out because people don't know. They don't mean anything by it. But when you do it, it discounts the experience of the person. And that's when people feel othered, right? That's when we yes. feel othered and we feel bad and we feel shame. It's enough to feel shame sometimes when you are late all the time and you might lose your job because you've been late. Or you're late and people go, oh, like, you're the black girl. We knew you were going to be late. Right. <laughs> and that has you lose your job. Right. So to be othered by, you know, people who especially people look like you, it hurts. So if people don't know, then they don't know not to do it. But so that's why you have to have these types of conversations sure. so they know, because that's what happens. We get othered a lot. Like, we, you know, wow. like it's different. It's an, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's enough feeling different on your own. But it's worse when people around you that are supposed to understand you uh, make you feel different. And you were talking to like about relationships. So, yes. you know, romantic relationships, family relationships, working relationships, uh, you know, it can be problematic. Um, and it can make you feel like you have to mask who you are. Right. You can't be who you are. You can't be yourself hmm. because, you know, people won't accept that. And that's really painful. And that's what causes a lot of the anxiety and depression. You know, so it's a, when you're a therapist, it's like you look at it from the other side, so you can be depression and ADHD. It's like sometimes it's looking at it through the, the other side of the loop, like through the needle the other way. When you're other like that, you have all these times that you've been shamed or in school when you get uh, these negative messages. Kids with ADHD, I think it's they get 20,000 more negative messages by the time they're 12 than kids that were typical. So by that time, you think that there's got to be something wrong with me, mm -hmm. right? And then, of course, when things aren't quite going right, that's when, you know, girls, their hyperactivity, instead of being outward, it, it turns inward and they get anxiety. So that's why there are a lot of anxious women. Um, you know, boys sometimes when, you know, they can't pull it together and they, they say you have ODD, oppositional, uh, Defiant disorder, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, they, because when you aren't able to maybe stop because you're hyperactive and you get, uh, like I said, a negative response, then it's like, oh, they're saying you have ODD. It's because I'm angry. I'm angry because you didn't discount. You didn't give me a chance to say I don't want to finish my video game because I'm really engrossed in it. 
right? So you know, these other conditions come up and a lot of them are fueled by the ADHD and the misunderstanding of the diagnosis. Uh, and I just think it's really important to, you know, bring those things out, you know, because okay. people don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. definitely. No. Let's, okay. And you, you provided a good segue to my next question within the African-American community itself. That's, that's what our podcast is about. Are you seeing, and both, please answer, are you seeing an, a shift, an increase in the normalization of neurodivergent uh, people within our, I know you guys see patients that are specific to whatever, but I mean, are you, are you seeing that? Are you seeing a, a, a more, an increase in, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, patients? acceptance that's the word i'm looking for acceptance oh for neurodivergent um, individuals covid has done some things and i'm not sure it probably was a little bit before that time where i did see an increase of black folks coming to therapy y'all just straight coming in and i think the acknowledgement of it, but I'm not going to say full acceptance outside of my four walls. I definitely get a space where Letitia, you're the only one I can tell this to. I'm nervous to go say this to mama or daddy or anybody. I can't even tell my good friends. So it's been self-awareness has been increased where individuals are like, I don't feel good. I don't like this. I'm a little bit off what's going on. And I'm starting to watch other people around me and uh-uh, I don't like it. But as far as like a widespread acceptance, it's still we have work to do there it, it, what, from what I've seen I, I feel like there's still work to be done there um, and even with the voice of my individual as we work and they find their growth they may or may not go and share it right I have people that literally say I told my, my husband I'm coming to a doctor's appointment because they don't want to say um, that they're coming to see a therapist right um, so we, we've come a long way but we have such a long way to go is where I think I stand on that one okay mm-hmm. You are completely right. There's a, I, I'm glad that there is more awareness uh, and more people willing to even say, like, I'm going to therapy. Like, people are like, I'm going to my therapist. Uh, it's interesting, though, you know, the way I was taught with uh, the therapy model. If I'm out and I see a client, I'm not even supposed to say hi because we're supposed to act like there's something wrong with that. Like, oh, you know, oh, you might know you go to therapy. Well, it's a personal thing. I'm not going to run up and go, hey, I'm a therapist. But if I see somebody, you know, out in the street, they usually say hi and girl, hi back and we'll keep going. But it's the way that it has been kind of like pathologized, like this is a secret, it's wrong or something. There's bad, no one's supposed to know. That is, that to me, that model set this up and it's even worse in the black community. But I find now there's, you know, there is more acceptance of it. I don't think people run out and go, I've got depression or I have anxiety, but people do speak more. Um, You know, I'm an advocate also, so I'm speaking all the time about it and I'm I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are advocates, so that's kind of a skewed perspective. However, uh, with coaching, what I like is that we can manage the ADHD portions. And then if you have some other things that need to be treated, like in a therapist's office, if you have something uh, something that, you know, is not something that coaching covers, coaching is not therapy. The person, it's an easier entry for them to be able to go get help because it's 
they know what it's like to have somebody who's a partner, somebody who uh, is going to rock with them, you know, to get these things done. And so uh, it, I feel like it's easier entry for them to go, hey, well, now let me handle, you know, the depression or the anxiety or let me handle the trauma, you know, that's going with this. So that's what I really like about coaching, because it really does help to get people in the door in a different way that they wouldn't have before. Absolutely. And you hit it on the head. Some people will go to a coach well before they'll come to a therapist. It's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's the word. Because yeah, it's like, I think it's like a baseball coach. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like the wording. The wording yeah, of the it. Language. Like going back to the language, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like earlier yeah. before we had started and I was like, um, am I supposed to say mental illness? I felt really awkward even saying that. It just... Because I just feel like there's been much more an awareness now of people going to see a therapist for various reasons. And to say mental illness, it sounds like, oh, there's something wrong with you. When when it's really not, I'm not trying to like diminish anything that's necessarily wrong, but you're just having to live life differently. Absolutely. And or who you live with has to live life differently. So you may have to do some adjustments to to the household. So that way everyone is enjoying them best is enjoying their best selves really is, is what I'm gathering. Um, it's funny you mentioned yeah. COVID, the COVID shutdown or during this whole COVID time. Um, what has been some of the things that either you've experienced or have heard people um, has your coping or living with ADHD kind of changed with, with COVID mm-hmm. And then Letitia, um, I'll I'll segue it to where what have what have you been seeing with your clients in terms of anything in different before COVID? I don't want to say post COVID, but now that things have opened up a little bit more, what is what are we seeing differently? Yes, well, it's it's interesting because COVID has exacerbated a lot of symptoms for people. I've had more people that say they didn't know they had it, and all of a sudden when they went home and there wasn't that structure of work. Or at structure of like taking their kids like off to school, like having to manage things differently. Um, they weren't able to make that adjustment. And that's when they were able to get a diagnosis of ADHD. But then I have some clients who were like, this is fantastic. Because all of those, you know, concerns of having to get up, get out, get their kids, having to try to, you know, get into an office, a lot of times office situations, different situations that were so pressure filled and that moved quickly. Um, uh, many people with ADHD need some time, like downtime alone. Like, you know, this just gave a chance for everybody to slow down. So when uh, some people were like, I don't know what's going on. They were very upset. Many of my clients uh, with ADHD or with other conditions were just like, oh, now you know how I feel every day. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> I was the one that's like, why is everyone like all upset we close? Like, we close. Like, enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, it's been interesting. It's been interesting for myself, particularly it for myself. It it was great because it did give me a chance to slow down and really kind of uh, figure out different lanes that I could be in, in a way that worked better. But, you know, it did lead into the hyper focus of a lot of work because I had a lot of work because a lot of people were coming and are still coming to me. But for my son and stopping school and remote school, Mm. ADHD was terrible. It was the worst year uh, of our school lives. And we've had some really bad school years Um, because without that structure, without going to school, without seeing your friends, um, 
it was really, really, really difficult for him. And I could not wait to the day to say, go back. I was like, you, you go <laughs> so that we could, you know, get back to some type of a normal life because, and a lot of uh, his friends too, they, a lot of them had depression and anxiety mm. and, um, you know, they would come to me and I would call their mothers and be like, you're going to have to take care of this. So it was just, that part was a really hard time. So, you know, it was a, it was different things for people. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, so in, you get two sides, kind of how she said. I have some people that just did not like it, did not thrive. Um, a lot of the teens that I see being inside the house, we lose vitamin D. So vitamin D is an essential component to maintaining our mood, our concentration, our ability to regulate, happy, sad. And uh, with that, we're being in the house. It happens spring and summer. That's when COVID really mm. kind of happened. Last spring, we went into summer. That's when vitamin D levels are at its highest. But guess what? We were at a deficit. So then we're sitting around. We're eating more. We're on the computer watching TV or watching movies. And in these movies, all what's happening, everybody life seems so happy or things seem to be great. And now I'm comparing it to what I do not have. What do you mean? And so it, it led to just more people being in the home and off their schedule. And so it shifted that way. But then also I had some individuals who was like, this is great. Right? Now, don't ever make me go back out my house again. So you, you do get both sides. Um, however, um, we started what I saw mostly and what I'm seeing now, the revisit of coming out, getting out of the house. So my anxious clients are like, wait, is it time? Who said that it's time? It's not. No, no, no. So now we're doing the opposite effect where they were like, I like being home. And now it's, it's OK. Who says you have to just jump back out there immediately? Right. Or at the full pace you were going before. So just helping people put steps in place so they can get a little bit of what they still enjoyed <laughs> and also get them back integrated into what they need if you will mm -hmm. i think about adults who have been doing remote working and their employers are now forcing them to come back <laughs> to work whereas you know when they were at home they were thriving you know for some people it was fine so i guess what do you what do you do in that case then because it's like and, and we could even diverge off of that and say, well, you know, you're seeing a, a big increase of people resigning, but um, who knows if that's related to or not. But I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, when you kind of forced back into um, employment, you know, how that's going to affect you. Yeah. So, and even with any issue that a person brings to me, let's say that's the one that we're talking about. You're forced to go back to work. I talk, I, I just talked about their level of self-awareness and what works for them. So showing up for them in a way where we can discuss their needs versus their wants and helping them separate the two. Because a lot of times I can say, I need this piece of cake. I need it. But really helping them know a need is food and water and nourishment and physical things. And so when a person tells me, Letitia, I need to work from home. Okay. Talk to me about how that's a need. And I just let them figure it out. I'm not one to make the decision, but I help them really figure out the differences between those two and they make the decision. I have some people that say, you know what? No, I need to make money. And this specific job helps me do that in the way of which how I want to live. 
All right. So we figured that part out. So do we just go back to work and just do it? Well, I don't really like that. Okay. So are we looking for another job, but that makes the same pay? So it's just about slowing down uh, what we feel in that moment because it's the difference between our thoughts and our feelings. However, we don't know the difference in the moment. Right. So this actually ties into conversations with our spouse. Right. So or our significant other relationship. This person told you one thing and uh, they said, um, hey, go over there and uh, oh, you always keep the house dirty. Let's do that. You always keep the house dirty. I can't believe the house is dirty. So in that moment, I'm upset because it takes me back. My core belief is the woman's responsibility is to keep the house clean. All right. So now you're saying that I always do something that goes against my core belief. I'm mad at you. Right. That's my feeling. But I have to slow it down a little bit because my thought what happened first was probably what my mama told me a long time ago about keeping my house clean. But instead, the only thing I share later with my spouse is you hurt my feelings when you said that. The spouse is probably going to say, well, what you mean? I hurt your feelings. What? All I said was, but I missed the thoughts and really being able to show the help a client slow down enough to figure out to separate the thought and the feeling. Because one person's thought on that same scenario of the spouse saying the house is dirty, they probably could say, oh, it's because I'm such a great mom. Of course, my house is dirty. Right. So their thought shifted their feeling. Their feeling at that point was what a compliment. Oh, I feel so good versus someone else's thought could have been just the opposite. So that's what happens in the therapy room. Right. Like really having people tell you scenarios and paying active attention to what they're telling me and helping them in that moment challenge what they're saying to figure out how to we work with this. I don't even know how I got here, but anyway. No, but <laughs> no, that's, cool. that that leads into a question of as we talk about, you know, we talked about kind of living with, and we'll get more into the living with, but as you've been both seeing patients and you know, Inger with you living with it, um, how do you bring in other people in the household to help manage the day to day? How does that take place? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's, a, you know, that's really, is, I think it's a really interesting question. And it's really interesting what you're saying, where that's a great example. Like, you always, you know, the house is always dirty, right? It's all, always, always, always. There's like never a day or a time that it's not clean, you know? So, and it's, it's mm-hmm. always my responsibility. You live here too. <laughs> so, you know, there is that thing where present neurotypical, they bring their own, their own shit to, to the party too. Everybody mm-hmm. brings their shit to the party. You're right. so nobody <laughs> is perfect here, you know? So it's not that, you know, we're always just managing something that would be going on with the person's neurodivergent. You know, we all, we all have to manage our things. Um, you know, but there is a part of, uh, like ADHD rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is not in the DSM, but for some, they took that out a few years ago, which now we can understand why they took out the emotional piece. It's a huge emotional component to ADHD, um, that, uh, Dr. William Dodson, uh, he's the one that coined that phrase rejection sensitive dysphoria. And what it is, is that sometimes when people will say things, the way that uh, we could hear it or take it is that it's definitely my fault. I'm definitely wrong. You definitely hate me. <laughs> you know, we just, you know, sometimes we can really be in our feelings about stuff and not even really listen to what the person is saying. And I spend a lot of time with my clients, you know, discussing 
already stopped serving you, right? We, we sit down and take a second and like you're saying, just slow down and say, well, what was said? And we can slow down, it's like, what was said? It's like, what did you hear? But what was said? And already stopped serving you. Uh, because uh, most of the time, when they, you can take a second and think about it, that thought is not serving me. That I could have a different thought or I could clarify, right? So a lot of clarification uh, needs to happen, I think, in families and any uh, relationships that you're having. And I've also found, um, especially when I coach, like I coach in executive organizations, and I coach in executive organizations where um, the uh, the leadership will be could be neuro uh, neurodiverse because a lot of uh, people who are neurodiverse are entrepreneurs or um, have started and run really big companies because that neurodivergent thinking is the way that you're able to have those big thoughts. Uh, in order to have these wonderful things happen to move for the world forward. But when you have neurodivergent people in power and the neurotypical people underneath, the, the communication is very poor. <laughs> because the because neurodivergent people can usually, you know, communicate with other neurodivergent people. And oh. Neurotypical people can either communicate with them or they don't care that they miss some of the communication. But sometimes people who are neurodivergent and people who are neurotypical the way that the language is used doesn't go together. Sometimes um, there's a lot of ways that neurotypicals kind of just make assumptions about things or, you know, the English language is uh, pretty weird with metaphors and idioms and things like that anyway. And sometimes people who are neurotypical don't just, they don't think in those ways. They don't think in those ways. And a lot of times the communication will be like, you may say something and the other person has no idea that you really meant that. And that's really what was going to happen. Or you did not mean it. Um, I have a client where it's like they they thought like when, you know, maybe people friend you like on Facebook or somewhere. And they're like, oh, like when I, you know, we'll, get, we'll see, we'll get together, we'll have lunch. They have no intention of having lunch with you, right? It's just something they said. The person that they're going to be like, okay, when, where, where are we going? What do you think the date would be? You know, when the other person's like, oh, my goodness, because that's not what they meant, right? They were just being nice. They're just having small talk. And wow. the, those things sometimes cause huge communication gaps. So, so imagine something like that in your home uh, mm -hmm. with you and your spouse. And then if you have, you know, I have a neurodivergent child. What if you have another one that's not? Like, <laughs> So it's like trying to figure out the communication in the home in ways that work for everyone to know what's happening and to clarify before you get all up in your feelings. And then it's so much harder to do it. It's almost like stepping on eggshells, or am I not? Is that depends, is that, <laughs> depends mm -hmm. on like whose relationship it is. Not not always, because again, okay. like, you know, everybody, like I said, brings who they bring to the party. But you know, you just it's like any uh, relationship that you have. You've got to figure things out. You know, I don't know who's like when you're married or have like boyfriends or girlfriends or because like, you know, there are times when you guys are getting along and you're figuring it out, and there are times when doesn't matter what the other person says. It's like, I don't like you. And I don't know what you said and why, right? So, you know, it, it just all depends. So you're not always working, walking on eggs. You're just trying to always figure out um, just how to communicate better. To me, it's like, it's a resilience thing. It's like, we get, we fall down, we get right back up. Let's work on this again. Let's, let's, the things that work, let's keep doing that. The things that don't work, let's reflect and try something else and then come back again and, and, and do it again. Wow. 
Yeah, for me, it's helping identify those uh, triggers, like what took them there. But mm-hmm. it's slowing it down. Like something occurred. There was this big blow up. We blew up. All right. So but I, I take us all the way back. What happened before? What did you eat? Did you sleep well? Um, did something get on your nerves? Did you have a conversation with somebody that you really didn't like? Like I, we try to identify all of those things first to figure out, oh, well, I see why I came at a 10. It's because I had multiple things that happened that built up for me. So then we say, okay, it's not saying it's an excuse, but now we're saying, how do we recognize within our body, right? Because we can pay attention. Our body talks to us. So paying attention to say, okay, wait a minute. I'm at a three now, but oh, I'm getting to a five. So then deciding, making that choice, I'm not going to engage. So I will tell my couples, just tell them, hey, I need a timeout. This isn't the best time for me to be able to continue with this conversation. Can we talk about it later? That's it. Like, and, and literally having to teach them in the moment, how do you choose a timeout? And, and just and it depends on the responding of the cu- of the other mate. Because sometimes I have the mate that'll say, no, no, no. They need to talk to me now. So we have to really talk about, okay, hold on. Let's give you an appointment time, if you will, of when I will revisit the conversation. Mm. Because generally we get people, some people who are ready to discuss now and some who are like an ostrich. They want to put their head in the ground and never talk about it again. So I try to teach them, okay, come up with a reasonable amount of time specific on the topic or the severity of it of when we can come back and revisit and then it's okay i can probably talk just give me a minute give me 30 minutes i can talk about this then um you then have to keep your commitment though right because you yeah. said you were going to come back and say it and if that's the case all right now let's come on let's let's sit and be rational and try to have a conversation about whatever it was that i asked for a timeout on yeah i love that i wow. love that yeah, I really love that because self care is really important. Like, that's always the root, right? If you, you know, did you eat? Did you sleep? Or, you know, you're hungry, too angry, too tired, too lonely. You know, looking at those things first, and then I look at the next level of self care. Always in any relationship, like boundary management and your values, you know, things like that. Those that that's the part of self care that people don't look at. And when you don't manage those things, that's when it leads to those triggers. Because it's like, well. You know, there you look at when you go deeper, it's like really they're they're violating maybe your boundaries. But did you put a really put up a boundary, a strong boundary? Do they even know that there's a boundary there? So really going deep into what, you know, why you're having those feelings and then, you know, using those somatic feelings, like you were saying, like what's in your body that you're going to feel that even before you feel the trigger. So you'll know like when, you know, like, I don't know, my husband, like if he starts to, I don't know, just kind of get on my nerves. I know. That that feeling that comes in my chest, like, oh, it's like I already know that that's the trigger is coming next. So when I feel that feeling first, it's when I can go, okay, like, what's your choice? Are you going to choose to be mad or like, choose to yell at him? Or are you going to take a breath and go, hmm, it's really not that important? Like, you know, is it really that important? So using all the tools that you have to be the best person you can be in the relationship, you know, allows it so that, you know, you can choose whether you're going to have an argument or not. But when you don't, it's like, yeah, we can all live better with it. So it's definitely, so I think a lot of it is just like across the board, not necessarily when you're living with um, different conditions. It's just like you're living with the human condition. And that's exactly what I was, I was going to say. It seems like a lot of the uh, strategies, techniques, anybody can use really. You know, we talk about <laughs> communication being a breakdown, like a one of the big breakdowns, but you know, anybody 
could have communication issues in a relationship, right? So, oh, yeah. you know what I'm saying? So you can just insert some of these strategies and let it work for you. And hopefully, you know, your relationship will continue to blossom and improve and so forth and so on. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was actually going to um, talk about vulnerability when Miss um, Inger here was talking about uh, boundary development. And when you know yourself very well, what happens in couples, sometimes we don't share it. We over assume that my partner should know me. Right. But we mm. just learned ourselves. Right. So I just really learned me. But I'm assuming my partner should know that that was going to make me upset, that they knew they shouldn't have said it that way. They knew I was too tired to get me involved with it. How do they know? So vulnerability is that space where we have to be exposed, if you will. And COVID did bring a lot of that where people were learning themselves and discovering they had new boundaries and new expectations and old trauma that was coming back up to the surface, but they didn't catch up those close people in their in their circle, but they expected them to show up and understand and provide them the needed support. And, and when they didn't do that, they felt let down. And so a lot of what I also talk about is getting it out there so somebody can show up for you in a way that you're already expecting them to show up for you in that way. Okay. That, um, so I was always gonna I was gonna go into so what do you do at this point? You as an individual, you are coming to know yourself, right? And your friend, you know, how does that piece connect with relationships with your friends, with your spouse? Like you don't know you yet, you don't know you fully. So, you know, what does that dynamic look like in the moment? Ah, I see that. I see that. Okay. So first of all, I see different layers to it because I have close friends. That's only like one or two people. Like I don't really have besties, quote unquote, that see my journey. Right. So I don't owe every part of me, my exposure to everybody in my life. Right. So I may have repeat that again for the people in the back. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, everybody should not have the same level of access to you emotionally. You should have different levels for different people, and that's okay. So your partner has a level. Then you have your girlfriends. They have a level. Let's go a little bit bigger. These are your once-a-month friends, right? Then, okay, they have a certain level. Then it goes further than that, extended family, depending upon where you put them. There's no definition for what level people need to be at in your life, first off, right? So family, extended family may go outside of your book club friends. You may be closer to them than your extended family that cause trauma and certain discussions that you don't need to be in with them. And then after even further extended, maybe our church and our coworkers, right? So being able to identify that. But I'm today I was going to just focus on like the, the inner core. Is that okay, Tasha? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, all right. So for that dialogue and what that really looks like, they may or may not have known that you started on this journey of self, right? They might have. You might have been really close to him and you might have mentioned, man, I'm just learning a lot about myself. Right. Or let's say you haven't. You didn't inform them that that's probably where I would start. I just been really learning a lot about myself. And this is what I've learned. And you tell them, hey, I learned that um, I'm, I'm a morning person, but sometimes whenever I don't really sleep well, I'm not at my best. So you may not see me overly engaging with the kids in the morning. You may see me kind of snippy. Right. And, and just 
telling my partner that to let them know what you've learned about yourself in that moment. Hopefully at a calm time where you can actually bring it up and point it out and just say, the reason I'm telling you this is and not for to walk on eggshells, right? But to be mm-hmm. able to say, just so you can be aware. I was off this yesterday morning. You noticed I was off. I want to tell you what was going on for me. This is what I learned about myself. And then even better, close that full loop. This is how you can show up for me whenever you notice I'm experiencing this. Giving them that. Yeah. And I think it's a good loop. I learned this about myself. This is what I'm going to do. And this is what you could do in the moment to help me go full circle on this thing that I've learned about myself. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be, I guess the, my question or my thought was, well, when is a good time? When is a good time to deal, right? Yeah. And I guess it's like, it doesn't have to be a formal situation. Like, okay, Sunday night, let's talk. Or maybe, it, maybe it does. I don't know. I don't know. Tasha pulling out the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I don't know. But I guess in the moment, I guess in the moment, I guess would be the best time, right? Um, as you are getting oh, yourself out. I'm thinking what is the moment because when I'm at a 10 there's no rationality happening for me in that moment so in the moment may not be best y'all okay no. okay no. Yeah, you have to go back and make an appointment like what she said earlier you make an appointment yeah. yes. so, cooler, you know if there's a cooler you know timing and or when you're yeah. at a one or a, you know two yeah, I see preventative care, right? Preventative me, I learned this about myself. I can just go ahead and tell you, look at the journey I'm on, look what my therapist told me, or I've seen this on a TV show, I was reading an article. It doesn't feel 100% familiar. We're not in a crisis right now in the moment, but I can bring it up to my partner. I'll do it then. Or post an event, not in the middle of the event, y'all. Like, like, it's not like, well, let me tell you what I learned about how we need to address this right now. Hold on, time now. Like, because you're not, there's no blood going right here at the front of the, uh, the prefrontal cortex. There's no blood going right there. You're not going to come out with anything intelligible in that moment. So it's a preventative because now I can tell you how we're going to do it <laughs> coming up soon, hopefully. And then post. <laughs> A fire just happened. Let me, but let me tell you what I learned from that fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this goes back to the pathology. Look at me talking too much, but this goes back oh. to the pathology. Um, I help couples figure out just because we had a conflict, it does not mean the relationship is over. There are ways that we can recover from that. Conflict shows growth also. There's a growth opportunity within that conflict. Let's find out what it was. And I'm not I'm not one that's conflict shy. Oh, we're not in our honeymoon phase. We don't we fight. Okay, let's talk it through because we can fight well. Meaning there's ways that we could intentionally not hit below the belt on certain things and we identify those for one another we're not um we're not certain things we don't do there's a length of time that we argue or conflict or whatever fancy word we want to give it these days and putting those parameters in place for the couple so they can feel empowered like okay we're supposed to just be perfect right hashtag relationship goals that's fake y'all that is fake but um all right i'm done <laughs> no no we love it look look she's putting some fire out there Josh. Yes. okay you know what i'm saying that's why i said she needed to repeat it that one statement because folks had to pull, 
pull the car over so they could get the you know that sentence that's why yeah yeah i was gonna yeah, say yeah, she yeah. also said some golden nuggets too conflict does not necessarily mean that it's over yeah, y'all. My couples be wanting to give up. Now, I will be honest to say that there are some couples that come in, and I'm not going to be the one to tell them that it's over, all right? I just do a lot of highlighting of what they identify as their unmet needs. I ask them, how does this show up in their value system? How is this treating your mental health and your wellness? But I'm never going to say, girl, leave him or leave her. I'm not going to say that, but I just point out a whole lot of questioning and open-ended statements that help them process <laughs> They will ask you, go, should I leave? And I'll be like, uh-uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Exactly. <laughs> but if you're asking, why are you asking me? You know, like, why are you asking me that? Yeah. They'll be like, oh, yes. But what I find interesting, too, is that my younger couples think that it's supposed to be perfect. They are like hashtag goals and that everything should be fine. And it's just like, no, I think that what I said, 70% of the things that come up in your life, you guys aren't going to agree with. You're just not. You're two different people. It's about how you're figuring out how to deal with that 70% and um, how you're able to manage that day to day, you know, as people. So I really like it when they're like, oh, we had a fight. And I'm like, great. They're like, why? I'm like, that means you're in a relationship. <laughs> now we have something to work with. And, you know, really your life has begun. And they, they really, it's hard for them to get it. But once they do get it, they can figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but as it has to do with neurodivergence, a lot of people at ADHD have black and white thinking. So when there's an argument, you're right. They feel like, oh, we argued, it must be over. He must say he must hate me or she must hate me. Oh, we had an argument, then I must be the most horrible person on the face of the earth. We can never get over it. Um, so there's a lot of that thinking that, you know, we have to look at and say, is that true? Is that not true? Is there a middle ground? You know, why, why does it have to be all or nothing? That, that is part of uh, what happens a lot with ADHD. There's also a lot of gaslighting that can happen with people with ADHD, where um, a lot of times people can, they can just feel like they're set up by people because a lot of times people will prey on the fact that uh, a lot of times, you know, they are uh, vulnerable or we will overshare. You know, we will put things out there that don't need to be or we, you know, can, you know, and people like, I met them, I knew them for two weeks, and I'm in love. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? And so that other person sometimes can really use that, you know, to their benefit and to, you know, the neurodivergent person's detriment. And that's something that we really have to look out for a lot to be sure that, you know, not getting those types of relationships, but also not putting onto that other person, um, you know, really sometimes what we may hear is, like, again, like communication thing. It's like, oh, you know. He took me, I know somebody said they bought me a coffee maker, like a fancy coffee maker. That must mean he loves me. Mm. <laughs> somebody got a lot of money. It's like, yeah, mm. they, they bought you. Like, let's look at what actually happened. What actually happened is you said you wanted to have coffee and they bought you a coffee maker. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happened. It doesn't mean that they love you. It means that they bought you a coffee maker. So sometimes being able to help somebody kind of differentiate like what's actually happening versus what sometimes the vivid imagination of somebody who's at has divergent thinking can really it can take off <laughs> and get them into a lot of trouble so there's a lot of things that we kind of sometimes have to parse out but i feel like a lot of things really do uh, boil down to slowing down and <laughs> taking a moment and thinking about things and sometimes that is very hard me of adhd because it is generally the opposite <laughs> of what what your brain and body tells you to do. So the power of the pause is really mm. the thing that I 
you know, with all of my clients, uh, therapy clients or, or uh, clients for ADHD coaching, the power of the pause is the golden nugget that if they all get that out of any interactions that we're having, um, it will change their lives. And there's nothing like being witness. Like to me, it is my honor to be witness to people when they take that time and they go through a door and their life has changed. And it's my honor to like witness that with them. So it's like to work, walk that journey. Interest. I, I love, I, I'm loving all of this. Um, one thing I'm noticing, neither one of you have talked about medication for people uh, with mental illness. I'm not saying you would be advocating for any such company. No one's sponsoring this episode. So I'll put that out there as a disclaimer, but in a world of a very fast society and we're throwing these various uh, medical ads what are your thoughts? Because I haven't heard either one of you talk about, well, there's this type of prescription, there's that. What are your thoughts on prescription medication um, in living with mental illness? Absolutely. So I can at least start here. Um, the first thing I do when someone comes in to talk to me before they come in, they do their intake paperwork. It's asking questions about their medical history and any medications, psychiatrist and or physician that they're working with. Um, because all of the techniques that I work with or within my scope does not include medication prescriptions. I cannot prescribe a medication. So for me, before the work that we do that we really get started with, I clarify for them that they've met with a physician to make sure any of the anxiety, for example, or depression isn't medically induced or related. So I do that first. Mm. As far as endorsing medication and suggesting that someone uses it, I talk about the problem and the cons and the benefits of it. Um, if someone's already working with a physician and or a psychiatrist, I can support that. I'll be a part of that treatment team. However, I do let people know, and I firmly believe the medication is not enough. Um, it's not a miracle pill. It's not a miracle drug. It does enhance. Um, however, I also talk about, uh, I, I use the word somatic. So I talk about mind-body awareness, what you feel within your body, more natural things. Um, and so that's more of what we do in my office. But if a person tells me, hey, Letitia, I want to go talk to a psychiatrist to get some meds, I'll support that if that's what they want. Um, and, but we'll talk about like, what, why, what are we expecting from this medication? And I just make sure we have realistic picture and understanding of what the medication medication can do and what work they still have to do as far as their life to get it back to how they want it to be. So it's nothing wrong with meds, but we talked about stigma earlier. Mm -hmm. Black folks not coming in my office telling me that they want to take medicine first. Like I've had people literally tell me, oh no, I'm coming to see you because I was at my doctor and they was trying to push a pill on me and I'm not taking it, you know, so I support that. But then, however, I have some people that come in that will literally tell me, hey, I was taking an antidepressant. It worked well for me. It's not enough, though. I want to continue on and on my journey of growth. So I'll meet the person wherever they are as it relates to the medication. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yes. Um you know, I too, I can't prescribe medication. And, you know, you do meet your your person who, where, you know, where they are, whether they want to or not, because medication isn't for everyone. And I know that these medications are very safe. They've been tested. They've been out for years. So medication is safe. Um, I think that many people, the, the stigma around it is that it's not safe or that, you know, we're drugging our kids or, you know, it's mess, <laughs> all kinds of things like that. And none of those things are true. 
Um, for many uh, mental health conditions, you, you know, living your life without them can just be torturous and dangerous. And, um, you know, but that's something to really discuss with your family and your doctor and decide if medication is for you. I will say pills don't teach skills is what we say. Um, you know, pills help. Uh, they can sometimes help to slow things down, especially with ADHD, so that you can then learn the skills to be able to manage the life that you want uh, and to have a life that you want. I will say undiagnosed, untreated ADHD, I can't remember the percentage, but it's like you have a 50% chance more of dying. Like your life expectancy, I think, goes down like 10 years because you know, if you're not paying attention, uh, if you're hyperactive and you're driving really fast or you forget that something's in the stove and there's a fire, like different things like that, wow. um, it, there, it, it really does, it decreases your life expectancy. So treating your ADHD, whether you treat it with medication or you treat it with some things that are a little more natural, like there's, you know, exercise, sleep, because um, our, our brains are always like, they need dopamine. So you know, uh, exercise provides that, you know, being into finding something you really love um, as your hobby or many times as your profession, like living in spaces that are ADHD friendly instead of putting yourself in spaces that don't work for you. Um, those are different ways to treat your ADHD and even other conditions. I always feel like you need to be in spaces that work for you and not against you. Um, that way you can manage it with those things, you know, and if you want to take medication, great. Like I said, I'll support, I will support on that. Um, and if you don't, it's like figuring out ways to be able to manage it where um, you feel okay with it, but untreated, totally untreated. Um, it's just, it's, it's not good. And it's really sad because in the community, when they say that to people, when I hear people saying like the ADHD is not real or like you're drugging your kids or, or your kids are going to um, have some type of like stigma at school, like, you know, they're going to label them. They're going to label them anyway. So you might as well help them get the help that they need to be successful in life uh, versus worrying about those things. So, I mean, it's part of the reason why I advocate so that people can know that it is okay. It is okay. And that, you know, opening up your eyes a bit or just trying things, um, just stepping back without the judgment, even for a little bit, can really open eyes and give people a chance to live the life that they want. And you see people living well, then I see people going, oh, I want some of what they have. Oh, you know what? They went to the doctor and they got some medication and they came to me and they to coach it. Oh, you like to do that? Okay. You know, that to me is what works. That's the way to get through to people in the community um, to be able to understand that. And so that, you know, that's why, that's why I speak. That's why I write. So I do the things I do, um, you know, to provide that access for um, people of color because, you know, we need it. The suffering, the suffering is real. And um, anything yeah. I do to change that, you know, I, you know, I guess overall our taboo is that it's good to suffer in silence. Mm. Yeah. Right? What is that? Like, what is that about? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it's because we were taught what happens in this family stays in this family. And that don't mean auntie and cousin them either. It literally means our nuclear family. Like literally that was taught. And so now it's what we don't tell them. And then. I mean, a big part of our culture is the church, right? And so the belief was to go to church. And even at church, everybody all buttoned up, tight hat on, looking cute with your lipstick on, dealing with so much, right? And and, and I think as a child, when you see that, 
you're like, oh, okay, I, I guess that's how I deal with it, or I don't. Um, I do want to go back to the medication, though, because I'll be remiss not to say this. There are times where um, higher level of care and medication is needed. So let's talk about psychotic features. This person is hearing voices, um, seeing people that other people are not seeing. That is a moment where there, there needs to be medication and some type of intervention. If there is thoughts of active suicide with a plan, with intent, a plan, preparation, and the means to be able to do it, they need 911. So please know that I am not stating, oh, we can just sit and talk about your thought process if a person is actively suicidal. I'm not stating that. Or have, if a person is having lots of ups and downs, there's this place where we're in a world where we're constantly talking about bipolar. Girl, I'm bipolar because they had a bad day and then they got really <laughs> upset. That's not what I mean. This person is having consistent, the Purple Book talks about, four to seven days of continued manic experience. What is manic? That's this place where you're not sleeping, you're having constant racing thoughts, you may be pacing, you may be hyper-religious, hypersexual, like, th and this is days on end, right? As some psychotic features, these individuals need a higher level of care at that point. So I, I didn't want to just say, oh no, you don't need medicine, no, no. We also assess for emergent care, and that's what emergent care, uh, at that time, any of those things, they need to be assessed at a higher level. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm sorry, I just had to say that for you. No, no. no, no. All, all disclaimer. We appreciate all. you. <laughs> yes. Okay, so I want to kind of go into something Letitia mentioned. You know, in the Black community, we talk church. Let's talk church and Go mental there. and ADHD and what that looks like and everything. In the Christian um, marriage, you know, we go through, you know, the, if you're, if you're married, I should say, you know, even in the, in the wording of a, in the ceremony, right? Through sickness and in health, right? Mm. They talk about that. So what happens if your spouse and, or your partner, your partner is, doesn't even recognize, does not recognize that they've got something going on. And you have a neurotypical, the neurotypical partner sees that. And it's kind of a constant position. Um, you know, what is what does that look like? You know, they're going to say go to church or go see your pastor, right? But you know, especially like I said, you have ADHD, you you have characteristics that, you know, that's just you, that's just you. But again, neurotypical people just feel like, okay, well, that, that is, that is not what it's supposed to be, supposed to be. So how, how you, how do you deal? How do you deal? Do you, I'm, really I'm, 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 I'm confused as it, as it, as it pertains to the church though. I know that was that was a very rant. That was a rant, a random rant. Um, as far as well, the church, as far as the church, you know, the church really pushes to stay with that partner through sickness and in health, right? But, okay. But, you know, what if it comes to a point where it is going to affect your quality of life? Like you mentioned, um, you are exhibiting manic and other uh, intense behaviors. You know, what does that look like and how 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 do you deal? How do we get them help? How 
do we get them help? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. okay, just so, going to say pray mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk. So first, if of course, if we're immediate need, like what I talked about a little bit ago, you get that, right? Like that's immediate need. But how I'm taking you, Tasha, is this perspective of I'm not in immediate need. It's just consistent communication error there. This is the way they're treating me. I just, people that come to me literally say, Tish, I don't like it. I don't want to be married anymore. I'm out of here, right? And from the church mindset and what that means, and they're having this like dissonance because they're like, well, Is this this what God told me to do? Like, I I don't think so. And we struggle that back and forth. So that's how I'm going to take your query. So what I help them identify is, first of all, we look at the word together. I start where my client is. All right. So if they're telling me they're a believer and that's in in their Christian faith and this is what they believe, we go to we start with what they believe. Okay, what does the word say? And we identify. So did God say that you're supposed to stay? It does say sickness and in health. But if he said that about your spouse, what does that also mean about you? Your safety. So I'm looking at emotional safety, physical safety, and mental safety. So we're looking at it from the perspective of, are you in a safe space? Is that what God would have wanted you to be safe? And so, it, and I also try to stress to them, we don't have to make a full-on decision today unless it's unsafe, right? So you're abusing me physically, like I'm not, I can't stay in the home things like that, then okay, let's make a decision now. Temporary doesn't mean permanent. And so I help them slow down on the decision being made right then in the moment. Like, I got to get out of here. Unless we are get, have to get out of here right now means we need 911 involved. All right. <laughs> so I help them slow down. Like, what do we mean right now? And then, so it's this place of saying, well, are you caring for yourself? Because in partnerships, I can't over-identify with your problem and keep helping you solve your problem and not pay attention to myself. So when I just take my eyes a little bit to the right, I'm not even looking at them as much as I would have been looking at them because I've now got my own plate in front of me. And yeah. so now if that person is distracting you from being able to work on the things that you truly need that's for your benefit, your growth, and your continuation as an individual then we can say, okay, if they're a believer, I'm like, you're praying on this. Like, you're figuring that part out. However, you've already secured your safety. You're already now with your plan of how you're going to work on yourself and those things. What are you doing to work on yourself as you do this? And then you can make decisions. Um, and, and I slow them down that way. But uh, it, it's it's hard to do when a person feels like they have consistent abuse what they call abuse right emotional they don't like the way they're being talked to they don't like what's being said and this person just really isn't getting it right and so um i do have people who are believers that say i'm out of here i'm getting a divorce and i help them deal with that destiny that they're dealing with and helping them find out okay how does this show up for you it's challenging your values however what uh, what was more important for you in that moment and paying attention to it so it's it's a back and forth kind of it's no right or wrong answer i am not the therapist that will say stay in the marriage a hundred percent forever if you've been abused i, I just I'm, but I don't tell them to leave i'm like okay so how does this show up for you or i maybe even give them a scenario of a person that's made up and it's very similar to their situation. And I let them say, what would you tell this friend? If this was your friend, what would you tell them? And helping them process it from that perspective. But um, um, but the church probably will say, stay, 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 regardless, possibly. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I have a client where, yeah, they're, um, you know, 
that's what it is. They're told to stay, right? Like, and they have, you know, different people they talk to in, in the church. And even people are, are say that they're therapists or I'm not sure what they are. That's like, yeah, you know, you honor your husband and, you know, basically just work it out because that's what you're supposed to do because you, you, you know, you took this vow in front of God. Um, you know, I speak on uh, some of the things you speak on, like your value system and what it is that you want to choose to be able to do and be, you know, be okay with the choice that you make. Right. So safety first. That's how I say safety first. If you're not safe, you know, we can't talk about anything other than your safety. But, you know, assuming that someone is safe, at least physically safe, even your emotional safety, it's like safety, then safety first, then it's like, is that okay for you to be able to live with that? Is that really what God intended for you? Mm-hmm. Um, and even having that conversation with your pastor, like having, giving them language to have that conversation with someone else. Uh, I do a lot of that. Um, what I have also noticed, like, so if one of the partners is ADHD, sometimes it turns into more of a parent child relationship um, where one, you know, one partner feels they're doing everything and the other person is just not doing anything. And so being able to kind of manage it from that perspective um, you know, giving, you know, both partners, uh, the agency to have those types of conversations and giving them language there too, if they feel like they need to bring it to the pastor. Cause many times what happens is when I can give language around it, then they can take it to the pastor and they can have conversations that I'm not able to have because I'm not that well versed in the Bible. Um, you know, uh, but I am well versed in people <laughs> and, you know, meeting people where they are and then giving them the tools is to have the self-esteem to say the things that they need to say, because, you know, people make decisions and people stay together for many different reasons. Um, and I totally respect that. But for people to respect that, you know, those are the reasons that's the choice you make. And again, you might make that choice today, but tomorrow you could make a different choice and yeah. that's okay too. Um, you know, many partners also feel like they get neglected because sometimes a partner's ADHD, it's a kind of shiny object thing. Like in the beginning, they kid, they're all about you because you're hyper-focused on you. You get married and they're hyper-focused on anything other than you. <laughs> but also then knowing, having them know about like what ADHD is for themselves and their partner, then they, they will know what's actually happening. And then they can start to make changes to accommodate what's happening, whether that's, that's uh, saying, hey, you need to pay attention to me and these are ways that you can, you know, giving a little grace when they don't and not feeling like it's just that they don't care about you. And again, like then giving language around it. So if you feel like you need to speak to someone else about it, that then there aren't misconceptions, but from like the pastor or the other person you're speaking, because if they don't understand what ADHD is, mm. they're going to give you advice. It's not going to work for you. Um, it's not going to make any sense. So, you know, education is uh, one of the most important things that I provide for my clients and language to go with it. Yeah, definitely. And that brings me to a question as we begin to wrap up. Um, what can parents, and I say parents because there are some men who listen to our podcast, um, and moms um, really do today as they listen to this episode, um, one, what is the best way for them to evaluate what kind of therapist that they need? Like what, um, like, it, I guess I know there's Google. We don't, I mean, you, you could Google, right? But what within that would you say like, hey, cause you know, the, not everyone can get to either one of you. Yeah. What would you recommend? Hey, if you're looking for a therapist that deals with ADHD, this is what services, or if you're not seeing it on their website, this is the keywords. What, what is that? 
or do you just, just <laughs> or do you just reach out to I mean are there certain um and I'm not saying you're doing endorsements but are there certain lo- uh, websites certain magazines that you've advertised in that yeah recommended um so their directories right yeah um, that they can go to so there's uh therapist for black girls i know dads are listening to there's even a therapist for black men um that exists where they can look zip code based um for individuals that look like them that offer uh therapy and counseling however it's not a, um everybody's not carved out the same so i do encourage the client or potential client to interview if you will or get to know their therapist and so questions that they can kind of ask well they can most times they tell their scenario what's going on and questions they can ask is whatever is important to them in that moment like what approach do you take that may be a word they can say right or um what uh do you give homework, right? Like, will it be something that will you'll have me do outside a session? And um, maybe even asking them, you know, what are your beliefs on Christian beliefs, right? If they want a Christian counselor, maybe they don't. I have some clients that specifically come to me not wanting that approach, and they want to know, can I share with you that I use crystals, right? Can I, can I be authentically myself? And so even though they go in those directories, it's still important to have a conversation because it's, it's a, a business customer service, right? So if they connect with them, like I do a 15 minute consultation, if you will, at the very beginning, getting to know that individual quickly, it's a quick snapshot. There's a place of connection. And so they should feel that, um, prior to them going and then whenever they show up knowing that that first session if it's virtual or face-to-face is still an it's called an assessment it's an assessment for a reason it's not a commitment that first session that you have with someone it's getting to know one another and being okay if you have to walk away and say i appreciate our time today but i don't think this is the place for me and that's okay it's scary but you have to say it to your therapist um and and that's fine because it's it they want to you want to get from therapy what you came for (laughs) there's no reason to meet with someone if you can't be 100 percent open with them you cannot give feedback and you're not able to follow up and you don't feel like they're following up so asking those type of questions at the beginning or maybe even in that first session figuring out if this is the person for you um and yeah i think that helps them to get what they need yeah, so there's, um, yeah, Therapy for Black Girls. Um, I was on that podcast. There's Clinicians of Color, which is another great directory. Yes. Um, yeah, so thank you. I'm actually, I'm starting an association for um, Black ADHD coaches. I, I plan to have it up and running um, in the fall, directory and a membership group, so that people can find Black ADHD coaches and probably other coaches in mental health spaces, coaches or therapists, because sometimes it's really difficult to um, find, because sometimes I feel like we're just in silos. We don't even know where each other are to be able to recommend, because sometimes it is that, like you might go to a therapist and they're not the person, they can recommend someone for you. Or a lot of times I think referrals from friends, if you have good friends that are um, in therapy, it's like who do they go to? Because if you you guys get along, you might get along with your therapist or somebody they could recommend. Um, I think that's really great. So with therapy, it's by state. With coaching, you can coach all over. I coach people internationally. Um, so, you know, we don't have those boundaries. 
Um, but with anyone that you're working with, it is definitely about, you know, having a partnership, somebody that you vibe with. You don't vibe with them. You're not doing like no work getting done. Um, so make sure it's somebody that you really do kind of feel that bit of a connection to and then give feedback. So, you know, in the first session, obviously, but as you're going along, even a good therapist, a few um, sessions in and periodically should go like, what do you think? How is this going? Uh, is there anything you think that you need from me, you know, to, to be able to move this forward and not feel intimidated by saying, hey, now you did, you know what, you didn't, you didn't, you know, maybe come back to something. There's something I think that I might want or you know, you've heard of this different therapies. Can we try this? Or what do you think about that? Um, you know, you're a partner inside of any of these relationships. I mean, coaching is all a partnership um, where, you know, as a coach, I don't lead the way, you lead the way. You know, I partner with you to get to the goals that you want to get to over that big, you know, chasm of whatever it is that you're facing uh, with your ADHD. And I, I lead that way too with therapy, um, especially like being like solution-based and strength-focused. So, you know, finding a coach, though, or a coach or a therapist that you just, once you have a conversation once or twice or three times and say, hey, like that's personally for me, I feel like I can bring up those things, like I said, that you won't bring up with anybody else. So that's when we can get work done. You know, if you're holding back, no work is getting done. You're wasting money. Like, don't waste your money. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like money, it's, but it's, don't waste your money. I tell them, don't waste your money. I tell you, you can put my kids through college, but I'm not here for that. <laughs> We're not going to do some work. You can take your money. So, well, yeah, you can, you can, but you, you know, why would you? So it's like, that's just, you know, really cut the chase. And not every, not everybody is for everybody. And a good therapist or a coach will be okay with that. They will really be okay with that. And if you have somebody that feels like they're just really trying to keep you, maybe they would keep your case slowed up or something like that, that sometimes is something to look at too. You know, and if you get like a, you know, trust your gut sometimes. If you get a weird feeling, it's like, go with it. Um, just go with that. So, you know, that's, that's, that's what I think. Yeah. So that's, that's another reason I come to the association. So people can then shop around uh, and just maybe find someone that looks nice. like them that is doing this type of work. Well, we definitely appreciate oh, both you. of you. Yeah. So, right. uh, where can we find you guys? You, uh, This is the time to kind of plug your business, tell us your coaching, so forth and so on. So we'll start with you, Letitia. Yes. Um, so I have a website. It is tomorrow and A-N-D beyond, B-E-Y-O-N-D, P-L-L-C dot com. And all of the information is there. It's actually a group practice. I'm the owner of the practice, but it's a total of seven um, social workers, um, male and females, uh, all black uh, agency there. And we offer uh, telemental health for anyone living in Texas, but we are located, our brick and mortar is in uh, DeSoto, Texas. I'm going to write that down with Patricia because you were the bomb. <laughs> I need you too. I was like, wait a minute, what's her name? What okay, Inger. I'm writing it down right now. I need to call her. Yes, I, need I was like, sis is dropping some gems here today. I thought, can people I ask? And, <laughs> yeah, people will ask me from different places. I don't know anybody in Texas. I'm like, yeah, I got somebody for you. Um, <laughs> I love the black. I love the black woman magic on here. I love this. Right. <laughs> I need this <laughs> exactly. Um, so I'll tell you. Um, so my website is ingershay.com. So e r s h a y e dot com. 
I do ADHD coaching. Uh, uh, I'm a psychotherapist. I do my psychotherapy through alchemy coaching. Um, but you can reach me uh, at ingershay.com. And then I do um, coaching for uh, neurodiverse, um, neurodiverse companies uh, and C-suite executives, um, an ADHD leader coach. Um, and so you can find me in all, at doing all those things at ingershay.com. Um, I also have a free Facebook group for Black women with ADHD. It's called uh, Black Women with ADHD Executives and Entrepreneurs. Um, and we discuss all things Black women with ADHD. And I also have, I'm starting a membership group um, for Black women with ADHD. Um, it's goal setting, action planning, accountability sessions, and community. So um, it's ADHD coaching collective for black women with ADHD. And that's going to be beginning uh, in July. Wow. I feel like we could have a whole episode on just the coaching piece of it. Yes. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Coaching is great. Coaching is not therapy. No, 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 it has has a place. Yeah, but it has a place in 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 the space of uh, helping people with their lives and some up with their mental health, including. Perfect. Well, Well, we definitely thank you, ladies. This was fun. This was fun. You can't miss me on these type of topics. I mean, I'll talk your ear off, to be honest. I love this. Thank you. (laughs) Well, we hope that we get to have you ladies back again um, at another time and and talk more as well um, in in terms of mental health and and anything else, too. So uh, definitely looking forward to following you on your journeys and helping others. Um, And and we hope that um, the mothers and fathers and those who are listening will be able to reach out to you uh, for recommendations or, you know, to, to receive that help in mental illness and coaching. So please, for everyone, let's continue the conversation through our listener comments and questions in our Facebook group. Please be sure to check out our show notes as we have provided you those links and information, as well as some articles in the um, notes section of our episode. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Or email us at mahoganymomology at gmail.com. Our website is www.mahoganymomology.com, where you can find this episode, of course, as well as previous episodes and some merchandise. Until next time, this is Mel. And I'm Tosh. And we thank you for listening to Mahogany Mammology. Bye-bye.